Welcome to the Melinda Eitzen Show. I'm Melinda. Today, we're so lucky. We have Adam Seidel here from the Adam Seidel Law Firm. Adam does criminal law, defending criminals or potential. They're not criminals till they're convicted. And he also does family law, like I do, divorces. And we're really lucky to have him on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad. Thank you for coming. Mm -hmm. So how did you become a criminal defense lawyer? Well, interesting. Um, I won't give you the whole boring story, but the bottom line is after law school, I went to work for a wonderful civil law law firm downtown in Dallas and then um, fell into a pro bono family law case and ended up in a full-blown jury trial my first year as a lawyer. And so I got bit a bit with the trial bug. So I interviewed and took a job with the district attorney's office in Dallas. Ah, so you were prosecuting criminals. I did. So I became a prosecutor for about six years. So, and as you know, that's the, your office is your courtroom when you're, you're, uh, when you're a prosecutor. So that was fantastic experience, tons of trials, tons of hearings. So that's how I kind of fell into doing criminal, criminal work. And it's common for people who do criminal defense to have that background. To That's have been correct. prosecutors. Correct. Might be strange to the public, like you're on one side and now you've gone to the other side. That's correct. All the police used to always say, well, we'll see you as a defense attorney in a few years anyway. So, <laughs> uh, but that is a common path. I bet you get asked, how can you represent criminals? Oh, yes. That question is the number one question at, <laughs> at, uh, at family gatherings and parties. So um, I think the, the, there's a couple answers. First is... Many times clients come in and say, that's, I didn't do it. That's not what happened. Or the version of what's being told is not the accurate version. And so there are layers to it. It's not just as, as clear as guilty or not guilty. Um, on the larger picture, honestly, the whole system works on the idea that the state has charged, so they have the burden to prove. And if they can't do that, then they shouldn't be able to go forward. And if we don't honor that and put the state to its burden of proof, then we're all a little bit in danger um, of, of overreach. So it's, it's, it's just the way it's set up. And, if, and of course, many cases you work out by agreement. In fact, the majority of cases get worked out by, by plea bargain agreements. So it's just, um, that's, that's how you do it. Um, so you, <laughs> well, and people criticize us as lawyers in general mm-hmm. until they need one. <laughs> That's correct. And then they're very, very glad to have a good, experienced criminal defense lawyer. Mm-hmm. And you're board certified two times, true? That's correct. Uh, criminal law and criminal appellate law. Well, that's a big deal. Yeah. So maybe you know what you're doing. Occasionally. <laughs> so um, you and I both also do divorce work. And yes. we've had a wonderful occasion to work together on mm-hmm. some cases. Mm-hmm. And I've hired you when my family law case had a little criminal piece. Correct. There's a a lot of intersection or it's not uncommon to have a little intersection of criminal law and divorce work or family law in general. True? That's correct. What are some areas where we see that intersection? Oftentimes family law cases can start out of a family law, a family violence incident. For example, Mm. we'll see an allegation of one, one spouse, um, uh, striking or being abusive in some way to the other spouse, and at the same time the criminal case gets going, somebody files for divorce. So then you can have two cases going on in two different courthouses at the same time, and that 
can be uh, have interesting ramifications on both sides because with two trials or potential trials going on, two potential court hearings going on, you have to be aware, each has to be aware of the other. Yeah, well, one thing that affects my divorce case, if it's a custody case, mm -hmm. I don't want a finding of family violence against my person because that's going to limit some of my client's rights as to the children possibly, right? That's absolutely right. So we have to be careful and conscious of that, of, hey, what's happening in the criminal case? Try to avoid a finding of family violence. That's right. And as many family law lawyers well know, if their client has an active criminal case, they really have to be aware that anything they may testify to in the family law case could be used across the street in the criminal courts building. So many times, as you know, uh, family law practitioners are stuck in an early hearing, early in the divorce case, and their client cannot testify about certain matters. Um, when they, so the other side can talk all about this family violence, and your client can't get up and defend themselves on those allegations because it could come back to... Um, haunt them or be used against them, if wow. you were, in the in the criminal court. It's so horrible, they can't even say, I didn't do it. That's right. Oh, so maybe they have to say other things to help kind of imply that. <laughs> <laughs> it is a fine line. I'm not a violent person. Yeah. But and they it, can't speak about that specific incident. Correct. They can talk about other things, the property aspects or things that don't relate to that allegation, but they can't say, that's not what happened that night. Uh, what really happened was X. We have protective orders, both in family court and in criminal court too, true? Correct. And you hear people, people will call me and say, go get a protective order or mm -hmm. go get a TRO. And they don't really know what they're even talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And they almost think that we just fill out a form and push a button and we get one. Right. It's not quite that simple, is it? Not quite. <laughs> is there a limit in who you can get a protective order against? Well, um, the vast majority, of course, of what we see is family members, right, and involving family violence. So, yes, yeah, so I, I, I can't get a protective order against my neighbor because he, he looks, you know, cross at me or kicks my dog every day. Um, but the family, family members, is, that's the most common context, dating relationships, those matters. And, of course, a lot of them start on the pure criminal side. If someone is arrested for an offense involving family violence or dating violence, that type of thing. Oftentimes, as a condition of bonding out of jail, the individual who's charged comes out of jail with a uh, protective order entered already against them by a magistrate judge. How long would that usually last? That, that can stay in place um, for six or, or usually they're kind of a 90 day uh, period of time. Um, so that can give the family law lawyer some time to go and get a protective order in the family court um, for when that temporary protective order in the criminal matter expires. And if somebody got one in a family law matter that's a permanent protective mm -hmm. order, how long would that typically last? Well, in the family law matter, mm -hmm. that, that's going to be a different, whatever the family court judge orders as mm -hmm. far as the duration of that protective order mm -hmm. is its own 
own case, own order, as you well know. <laughs> and, and as you know, most of the permanent ones are typically going to be a year, mm-hmm. maybe two years mm-hmm. um, f- f- in more dramatic cases mm-hmm. or violations of protective order cases. Um, the one where the person's getting out of jail, those are much more short-lived. Mm-hmm. They're usually kind of a 60- or 90-day period. Is it? Co- I'm right that it's common in a protective order, whether it's criminal or family, to say, don't go within so many feet of this person. Correct. Usually identifies an address of their house or their work. What happens if they do that? They step on the lawn when they shouldn't. Well, you know, it's a criminal offense in and of itself to violate a protective order. So they can be really, whether the protective order is out of the family court or the criminal as a condition of bond, it can be a separate offense to violate a protective order. So now you may have two problems. (laughs) It can also, on the criminal side, be a violation of the conditions of bond. So because the person's out free in the world with uh, on bond until their criminal case is disposed and finalized so if they violate their bond they can have a warrant issued and a hearing uh, it's called a to hold their bond insufficient and they can be arrested and have to post a whole new bond okay let's say the person who has the protective order against them they've made up now like he i'm gonna say he it's more often he but it could be she he hit her he ended up with a protective order against him. Mm-hmm. Now they've been on the phone and they've made up. And she says, it's okay. Come on over. Can she waive or forgive the protective order? The easy answer is absolutely not. <laughs> and, uh, and in fact, the protective orders all say, whether it's handed to someone getting out of jail or in a family court, that nobody has the authority to modify or cancel this order other than the other than the courts. So we frequently see that and hear that from clients who may say after the fact, yeah, we spent the weekend together <laughs> and clients have to be warned. No one can allow that. And some protective orders, as you know, are entered saying you can have no communication at all with the other party. Sometimes it's um, no harassing communication, but sometimes a protective order actually say no communication. And that's exactly what it means. <laughs> so no text, no email, um, nothing, or that could be a potential violation. And that clients really have to be warned of and reminded of, especially when it's new and in place. And there is that risk of, why don't you just come over and see the kids for a little while, or why don't you come get your stuff um, and uh, and talk about these things? That's very dangerous. It's not her protective order anymore. It's the judges. It's Ab- become an order of the court. Correct. And the judges take their order seriously. Yes, they, they, yeah, especially in the area of family violence allegations. That's, um, you know, we've all seen the bad stories in the newspaper. So... Courts are really cognizant of those cases, very mindful of what's going on. And oftentimes, frankly, their reaction initially is to go from zero to 100 miles an hour. And the courts take it very seriously. And if things aren't really what they may appear to be, I think the attitude is they can be undone later. The protective order could be dissolved or dismissed later. But they're going to err if they're going to err, it's going to be on the side of caution and, and being conservative about the orders. They want to err on the side of protection. Absolutely. Okay. So what about 
it's not family violence, perhaps in the sense of somebody was beat up, hmm. but there has been some type of threat, maybe in texting. They've had the person's texting them 25 times a day and saying, you better, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to mm -hmm. kill you, da, da, da. Mm -hmm. Does that have any criminal application or is there a crime being committed when somebody does that? So absolutely. And we often see that where there's not necessarily a family violence allegation, but an allegation, the statute is, is harassment, which is a misdemeanor. And broadly speaking, um, multiple text messaging sent to someone with the intent to harass or annoy or alarm. So that's where the gray area is. What's the intent is sending 25 text messages. When are you going to answer me? When are you going to answer me? When are you going to answer me? It starts to get into the realm of, yes, that could be characterized as, as meant to harass or annoy or alarm. So um, I do see cases and have cases where it's misdemeanor harassment for multiple texting. It can be um, multiple phone calls, um, uh, repeated phone calls to, to someone's cell phone, for example, hang up calls, calls where you, the person answers and you don't speak at all over and over again. So that we do see um, these misdemeanor charges of harassment in these, in these cases. What about showing up at their work unannounced, you know, to mm -hmm. because you couldn't get them to answer, so you're going to show up their work and get them to answer. Yeah. Well, assuming we're not talking about a violation of a protective order that you oftentimes, or if not always, ex prevent someone from going within some distance of the protected person, whether they're at home or at work. Um, but in general, it's just that's going to fall within either criminal trespass perhaps if the person's been warned not to go to that premises um, or harassment if they're showing up and engaging in behavior meant to harass, annoy, or alarm um, the other party. I had a case where the lady kept sneaking over his back fence and breaking into his house and removing things that mm -hmm. she claimed were her things, mm -hmm. but she would do that repeatedly. Yes. He wasn't home, but she would break into his house <laughs> and get her stuff. Yeah, no, there's there's multiple levels of that that <laughs> scenario you just painted from everything from trespass to to burglary, <laughs> and depending on if she's actually excluded by court order. So, yeah, that's that's troublesome. But um, and lots of times people will call their lawyer and say or think they need a lawyer to, to prosecute that or bring that forward to get charges brought. And that's not how it typically works. And, and certainly not in Dallas County, the police have to be the ones to do that. So the lawyer's answer that the client sometimes doesn't want to hear is you need to call the police and they need to bring the charges to the district attorney's office. Gotcha. So, it's a lot cheaper to do that rather than get, <laughs> have to hire a lawyer exactly. to bring your criminal charges. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, the first calls to, to the police. Okay, let's go to another area where uh, criminal can intersect with family. We have cases where somebody is violating an order that's already in place. So maybe it's when they're supposed to have the children. There, our orders typically have very specific times and dates that each person has their parenting time. And if someone violates that, we can sue, right? And say, hey, you're not doing this right. You're not supposed to have the kids then. Why aren't you giving the kids over? Mm -hmm. 
Does that have a criminal element to it or could it? Absolutely. And sometimes I think family law lawyers kind of are so focused on the family courthouse that um, it would be helpful to remind clients that violating court orders for possession and access to children or possession of children, parenting time as we call it, um, that can be a felony offense. So taking a child against a court order when you're not authorized to have them, um, and for example, leaving a, a geographic area of restriction, as we often see, you know, children are restricted and can't move during a case, taking them out of the geographic restriction in order to keep them away from the court, for example, that's obviously, that's a felony offense. Um, Is it kidnapping, basically? That they well, it's not really because you can't kidnap your own child. Oh, that's good to know. But it would be violation of it would be prosecuted as a felony under violation of a court order for possession of a child. What if I took my child to Bulgaria mm -hmm. to live? Is that kidnapping? That's again um, <laughs> going to be the same felony. In lay terms, it's kidnapping, but you can't kidnap your own child. So, but it would be a felony offense oh. prosecuted um, in, for example, in Dallas County if the child lived in Dallas County and the offense, part of the offense took place here in Dallas County. So that, so violating the court order, there's an interesting aspect to if you return the child within three days, you have a defense, then they oh. won't. So people get a change of heart and decide they better go ahead and buy and follow the court order oh. within three days. They, they might've saved themselves. That's um, interesting. And there's also interesting exceptions. For example, if they're taking the child outside the jurisdiction in flight from, from a criminal offense like family violence, there's some, there's some finer exceptions to that. But in general, just um, being obstinate and not turning a child over when you're supposed to turn the child over either way, one parent to the other, it's not hard to get up into a criminal charge. Um, they're not really often brought. Candidly, police, I think, don't really want to get involved in that. They may come to the house or try to solve the problem at the time. But they usually tell folks you need to go solve this in family court, but technically some, it could be charged as a felony and some jurisdictions may be more aggressive about that. And the police have a right. They're not obligated to, but they have a right to read the order and say, it seems like you're supposed to have the child or you're supposed to have the child right now. I think that commonly happens. <laughs> So, They're not always right. Yeah, the, Some of the orders are complicated. Yes, and many times folks don't have an order or mm -hmm. one signed by the judge mm -hmm. and on hand. So, or they only show them part right. of it and not the right Correct. part. Correct. <laughs> oh, poor police. <laughs> <laughs> I feel for them. Yeah, I think that I've seen plenty of body cams. They don't really want to be involved in where's the child supposed to be mm -hmm. at 6.15 on Sunday night. Um, and I think they'll try to solve it best they can with the information they have. But the answer is usually going to be go to family court. But the clients need to know they're walking a fine line um, with a potential criminal charge. And, and it's not just um, something that some family court judge said they should be doing. Right. Take it seriously. Amen. What about something like paying child support? If somebody didn't pay their child support long enough could there be a criminal element to compelling that so there is there's actually a specific 
Texas Penal Code statute about failure to support a child. And again, similar to the visitation, we don't see a lot of prosecutions of this, but I've handled one where the person just purposely didn't pay their child support and moved away to another state. And the family court was having a hard time getting them to family court for the contempt on the child support side of it. So they went to the grand jury uh, and got an indictment and they charged the person with a felony offense of failure to support a child. And they were extradited back to Texas. Wow. So that's rare to be, to be candid. Um, but it, it, there is a felony statute for failure to support a child contrary to a court order. Um, when the person had the ability to support the child. So the having the ability or not is that's going to be a defense, mm -hmm. but you may be having a, you know, be arrested and be having to get a criminal defense attorney to figure out how do we show if we can, that you weren't able to support the child. In family court and family cases. And when we say family court, we mean the judge that hears divorces, post-divorce modifications, and then there could be an enforcement action, like we're talking about, hey, you're not doing the stuff in that underlying divorce decree. Can the family judge put people in jail ever? Absolutely. <laughs> so again, not common, and but court, the family court judge who's issued a court order, you shall pay child support in this amount on the first day of each month. Um, failure to pay that child support can result in a good lawyer like you bringing a contempt action against the non-paying party, right? You can end up in an enforcement hearing and the judge can find the non-paying party in contempt and sentence them to the Dallas County Jail, technically up to six months for each violation. It's often just run together, but the person could be going to jail because they violated the family court judge's order and technically could end up with criminal law problems and dealing with a prosecuting attorney and looking at jail time uh, across the street in the criminal courts building. Again, not extremely common that that happened, but it can. And, and I've seen it happen where the arrearages or the amount of child support owed get to be really high and the person clearly has the ability to pay. I love the cases where I'm doing an enforcement and I have a picture of their house and their boat and their new Mercedes mm -hmm. and they're not paying their child support. Yes. So ridiculous. Okay. So let's give our audience some tips. If you are arrested or if your child who is a teenager or an adult or anyone you know is arrested, um, should you let them, should you answer all the police questions? Should you let them search your car? Like give, give some basic tips. So the most frustrating, I deal with a lot of clients um, who have never been arrested before. I say mm -hmm. it's the majority of my cases. Um, and, you know, it's natural for folks who don't have a lot of prior experience with the police to want to cooperate, to say, uh, I'll, you know, I'm not a say no type of person. I, I, I cooperate with law enforcement. I'll do what they ask me to do. But the reality is that I think most law enforcement folks may say, you just keep your mouth quiet and if you're arrested, you're arrested and you get out of jail and go get a lawyer um, and you deal with it 
at that level. So it doesn't make you look more guilty. That's the fear, right, of folks who, who don't normally come across law enforcement in that way. They feel like, well, if I don't cooperate, that must make me look guilty, right? But the reality is the best advice is less is more. And no, you don't need to be interviewed. You don't need to consent to searches or hand over your phone, do all those things. Um, all that can be sorted out later when you have an attorney to advise you on how to address these things, how to interact with the police, how to interact with the prosecuting attorney, all those folks. I completely understand what you're saying. I am law abiding, mm -hmm. so it would never occur to me to not just say, sure, search my car mm -hmm. or whatever. But I had a judge tell me once, and she wasn't telling me in particular, but she was speaking to a group of us. And she said, listen, you have teenage kids, which at the time I did, you're hauling your kids and their friends to lacrosse practice and school and all of that. Some kid that is not yours, maybe, maybe yours, could drop a little piece of marijuana in your car. And you don't even know it's there. And then you consent to a search and now you're getting arrested and they're taking your car because of that. So when she said that, I was like, oh, mm -hmm. I mean, unless you're the only person who's ever in your own car. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there could be a risk of something happening that you don't know about. That's your, correct. In your car. You can be a victim of circumstance and then it takes a great deal of time, effort and sweat to unwind it after the fact. So that's why we always, in the midst of when I get a call, um, the police want to come talk to me, uh, an allegation's been made about this, I have an appointment tomorrow morning to talk to the detective, the answer is always stop. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to first, you're going to come in and hire a lawyer and we're going to find out kind of the whole, what all's going on and get all the levels and then let that lawyer interact with the law enforcement folks and, and the prosecuting attorneys. So... And they can take your car for a long time. Evidence of a crime can be seized. Now, things have gotten a little bit better that, you know, keeping a car over a little bit of marijuana that was found in the back seat. you know, they, we can do something about that nowadays. Good. Um, but, yeah, sure, phones are taken and, and all kinds of things um, can be seized as evidence. And correct, you may be a victim of circumstance and not realize it. And of course, uh, many times I have clients who, who are young, who are over the uh, 17 or older, which in Texas is the age of being an adult for criminal law purposes. Oh. So yeah, on your 17th birthday, you do something wrong, you would be actually in, taken to jail rather than taken to the police station. Maybe they call your parents or over to the juvenile facility. Um, but yeah, many of my clients are, the, the concern is not about is, is, is my child going to prison or jail, but rather how do I keep their record clean, right? They're 17 or 18 and they have maybe a misdemeanor, uh, whether it's a driving while intoxicated or possession of a controlled substance. How, how's this going to impact their record? So when they want to go to college or apply for scholarships, or, or do things later in life. Get a law license. That's correct. Can't get one if you have a certain level of... Certain, but there's, there's um, it depends. You're not excluded depending just because you may have some misdemeanor offense. It but depends. felony. But that's certainly problematic. Ooh. So, But that's often the inquiry with, with my clients. And so um, 
certain jurisdictions like Dallas County have excellent programs of first-time youthful offenders that have um, kind of nonviolent offenses, and they'll work separate kind of alternative programs are called and do some things that can ultimately get their case dismissed and expunged. So oh, that's that's the, that's the golden ring. Expunged means it's erased, like it it will not show up in a background check. Expunged is expunged, meaning yes, you're correct. It's uh, the person can lawfully deny the existence of the arrest, and the and the information is all physically removed from and destroyed. So. Um, it's a clean start, so to speak. Oh, that's great. Yeah. There's another, if, if I can just yes. continue a moment, it, similar to that, though, at a lesser level is, is we have the term sealing of criminal records, right? And a lot of people call up and want to know about that. The technical term is non-disclosure. And certain types of probations can be subject to being sealed, not necessarily expunged, that it never happened, but rather sealed to where the general public doesn't have access to it. Um, so for background checks and things that um, people won't see it. And there's many offenses that are potentially eligible for that if someone successfully completed a certain, it's called deferred adjudication probation. So that's another thing we're often looking at. And how do we get to a result that... Um, their record is protected as much as, as we can possibly protect it. That's a big reason to involve a lawyer is yeah. it's not just about not going to jail. It's about, hey, you're, this young person has their whole future ahead mm -hmm. of them. We don't want them to start because they made one very poor decision. Mm -hmm. We don't want that to ruin every other decision in the future of their life, right? Correct. Good people can have a bad day. <laughs> Or have a bad lapse of judgment. <laughs> yes, and um, it shouldn't it shouldn't bring down the whole the whole plan and what they've been working for, whether they're already well into their career or young and starting out. Um, and so these are things to keep in mind about about that. Of course, the easiest way to get an expunction where it completely goes away is a not guilty or a dismissal. <laughs> so we're always oftentimes the first inquiry: How do we get to one of those results? And then if we can't and we don't want to risk a permanent conviction, how do we get to a result that can come out better, maybe sealed? Yeah, we, we've had a case together where you were able to just kind of make it go away eventually. Mm -hmm. And it was a pretty serious claim against our mutual client, but you were good and you mm -hmm. were able to demonstrate to the DA that it wasn't worth pursuing. That's right. And the, you know, the old term, make things go away that she said is so funny because so many clients want to know, do you know the judge? <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you play golf with the judge? Right. Do you, who does? But the reality is that it's the facts um, and the circumstances of the person charged and the strength of the case, um, the issues with maybe the person making the allegation. Mm -hmm. uh, and their credibility. So yes, bringing all of those things to bear and bringing to attention a lot of prosecutors in today's world really do, I mean, uh, really, really do want to do the right thing. That's great. And so they, they're really cognizant of that. I hate it when people question our judiciary. I'm sure there's, you know, there's good judges and bad judges, and I'm sure in the world there's corrupt judges, but my experience in the DFW area is we do not have corrupt judges, mm -hmm. that they're there good people trying to do the best thing. They may, some of them may be better than others mm -hmm. at reading the law, interpreting the law. They're 
judicial demeanor could be different. But do you agree, we on the whole, I'm not going to go play golf with the judge and slip him a hundred bucks. It's not really working that way. Do you agree? I absolutely agree. And I tell clients, um, I, I used to be a prosecutor with this judge, or I may know this judge because we've been in the same bar association for many years, but that and about $2.80 will get you a cup of Starbucks coffee. <laughs> so no, it doesn't, you know, because they're, they're going to do their job to do make the best call that they see in each case because they're cognizant of a victim mm -hmm. and what's going on with that person. So, yes, yes. so no, it, 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 it's usually the facts of the case and how hard the lawyer works it. I think the best we can get from the judge knowing us is that the judge will give us the benefit of a doubt that what I'm saying I believe is true. Yes. But that doesn't mean that my client is telling the truth. They could right. be lying to me. <laughs> Sure. But as you know, in family court, our credibility is always, always paramount. Very important. And so um, they certainly know that we're not going to bring something that um, and make a claim that we don't really feel strongly about. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, credibilities of the, the lawyer it's arguing important. a matter, it's, it's huge. Adam, thank you so much for being here. We're going to put on the screen your contact information so people can find you. But I would highly recommend Adam to anyone who has a criminal issue or a family law issue. He's excellent. I've seen him in action. I can vouch for him. Thank you so much for being with us, Adam. My pleasure. Thank you, Melinda. And now our tip for the day. You in a criminal matter have a right to remain silent. And I would recommend that you exercise that right. And you know what? It wouldn't hurt to exercise that right in family law cases either. We are seeing people put ridiculous things in writing, texting, posting things to social media. There's no backing off of that. I mean, if you put, I'm going to kill you in a text, it's very hard for me to explain to the court that you didn't really mean that and that you're really not an angry, hostile, maybe unstable person. So don't create evidence that will benefit the other side. If you're going to be fighting for your freedom or you're going to be fighting to be the primary parent of your children, don't create that path. Just write it down and then delete it before you push send. <laughs> Maybe go talk to a friend. Maybe get a therapist. Somebody that you can talk through the frustrations that you have that are normal. It's normal to be frustrated in some of these matters. But exercise your right to remain silent. That's the tip for the day. <laughs>